Good morning. Today's reading is from Acts 15, 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinguish, distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Christ Community's downtown campus. My name is Tyler, uh, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we are absolutely uh, that you're del- with us uh, today. Uh, I don't know how your weekend's been, if it's been a, a fun one, an easy one, but mine has been absolutely relaxing. I feel like yesterday passed by at about five miles per hour, which was great. Uh, wonderful to be in low gear after a really uh, busy, intense season around around here, at least for me. I started uh, at the church this morning, or the church yesterday morning, uh, did a few little errands here, and then spent the afternoon at a friend's porch Uh, while he did kind of a yard sale deal and I did nothing, just sort of chilled out, then went home for a nap, then I was at a coffee shop on the plaza later, I called my parents a bit, which was really helpful, and I washed my sheets. Uh, You need to know this about me, church, but I wash my sheets every week. Uh, There are a few things I love more in life than a clean bed. In many ways, I would say my bed is a sanctuary. Uh, My bed is a safe space. My bed is a place to relax uh, after a full, full, full busy day. And I've always been this way. I don't know if it's being an only child, uh, if it's always having my full room, but something about a clean bed uh, just feels at home to me. Again, this has always, always, always been a high value for me. So you should know that when I was in college, Uh, My my thoughts about my bed, my convictions about what a bed should be uh, and how a bed should be cared for were tested by a roommate who grew up in a house with a lot of siblings. And so this particular roommate, he'd grown up with siblings, they shared everything, they shared shirts, they shared food, they shared, you know, again, even a bed. And so one day I came home uh, and I go up to my room, I'm on the second floor of our house, 
I go up to my room, and there's my roommate napping in my clean bed. And so I rouse him out. I say, you know, get out of there, Michael. What are you doing? Get him out. We strip the sheets off. I wash him immediately, and a massive disagreement ensues about who's being more ridiculous, who's right, who's wrong. You know, he thinks I'm being absurd for, you know, you had to wash him now. You won't even sleep with him one night, you know, so he thinks I'm being absurd. I think he's being disrespectful. Utter tension just flares up in that moment. And in one sense, we've all been there, haven't we? And I know this might be, you know, an absurd particular example to me, but we've all had sharp dispute uh, with someone with whom we're in close relationship, right? We've all had sharp, sharp dispute, be it a coworker, a friend, a family member, sharp dispute, bitter dispute. Both sides think they're right. They're absolutely convinced that they're right with people who are close to us. And this morning, as we continue in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts, a series that we've titled Sent, and we've been at this journey for a while now, a few months, uh, we find ourselves looking in at a moment of sharp dispute in the early church. Uh, there's two parties with, with vastly different opinions that each vehemently disagree with one another. And so this morning we're going to ask and answer the question, what do we do when we disagree What do we do when we disagree? I think this morning's text gives some answers to that question. More specifically, I think it helps us answer that question in the context of the local church. It helps us to see how better to navigate the kinds of disagreements that can emerge within a faith community. I mean, certainly the chapter we'll be studying today, I think, gives some broad wisdom on how to navigate, you know, relational disputes, workplace disputes, whatever we might see. Anytime we open God's Word, it is filled with wisdom, and there's a lot we can take on it. But most specifically, I think today as we explore the verses that are ahead of us, we're going to see what do we do when there's sharp disagreement within the church, within people who would say, hey, we all believe that Jesus is Lord. And so I'm ready to dive in this morning. I think this is absolutely profound. This has been a fun text to work through this week. So will you join me now in Acts 15? Uh, Acts 15, and while you're turning there, let me just catch you up on where we've been in this sent series. So in our study of Acts, uh, we've seen a lot happen. We've seen Jesus ascend to heaven. We've seen the Holy Spirit come down. We've seen Paul, who used to persecute the church, be converted into a big proponent and fan of the church, one who's spreading the good news of Jesus throughout the Mediterranean. Um, And in the more recent weeks, we've seen Paul and Barnabas working together, and they've been spreading the news about Jesus around, and they're coming off an incredibly successful missionary journey. Uh, Sure, there's been opposition. Sure, there's been people that have, you know, imprisoned them along the way, uh, stood against them along the way. But gosh, there's convert after convert coming to faith. They're seeing churches planted and established throughout the ancient Near East. This has been a really, really successful journey in terms of people coming to faith, even though there's been some real opposition. And so things are going broadly well. People are coming to see the life-changing power that exists in Christ. Churches are being planted and established. But then, as Sherry just read in Acts 15, verse 1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, meaning those who are in the church, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So some guys show up from, you know, out of town, some other folks come into this church that's been established, And they say, hey, it's great that you non-ethnically Jewish folks believe that Jesus died and rose again. And it's great that you're interested in embodying Jesus's way of life by loving sacrificially, giving generously, uh, looking out for those who are marginalized and oppressed, adhering to kind of God's design for creation. It's good that you're doing that, but you're missing something. Uh, You've got to become 
culturally Jewish as well. You've got to be uh, circumcised as well if you're a male, or otherwise you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas hear about this message that these outsiders are bringing into the churches that they've established. And I want you to imagine for a minute that you're Paul, or imagine for a bit that you're Barnabas. Imagine you've seen all that Paul and Barnabas have seen. Imagine that you've experienced all they've experienced. You've seen the Holy Spirit come and work in these churches that have been established. You've seen these Gentile converts have some big life change. They've made some new decisions to live differently in light of their faith in Jesus. Imagine you're Paul and Barnabas, the leaders in this community, and you hear that some outside folks are showing up and telling the people in your church that you're planted that they really don't even know Jesus at all. Uh, How would you feel in that moment? How would you feel in that moment? Would you be angry? Uh, Would you be outraged? Would you be hostile? Um, I mean, I know how I feel, and I know what I'd want to say, but my mama taught me not to use those words. Uh, But I love, love, love what Luke records for us in this text. He writes, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. I mean, isn't that a sweet phrase? No small dissension and debate. What does that mean? Um, It means the dissension was big and the debate was passionate, right? I think about the time that I was uh, 15 and tried to sneak my way into a party at a friend's lake and my parents found out, saw right through my schemes. Uh, That was a time of no small dissension and debate. Uh, Or maybe the time that my car was like illegally towed and they wanted me to give them $350 cash to get it back. And I said, this isn't right. That's a period of no small dissension and debate. Paul and Barnabas, they hear what these these outsiders are teaching and they are infuriated. You know, on a scale of 1 to 10, their anger is at an 11. With every fiber of their being, they're so upset, they're so outraged that people would come into this church and tell them they're not really saved and they have to do this cultural custom to actually be saved. They're, They're angry as can be. But after no small dissension and debate, notice what happens in the text. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others, they decide they were appointed to go to Jerusalem to seek the apostles and the elders' wisdom about this question. So don't miss this. Paul and Barnabas, they disagree sharply with these outsiders. They are absolutely enraged with what they're teaching. But even as they disagree, they don't just take their ball and go home. Uh, They don't just say, hey, whatever, forget you all, bye, we're going to do our own thing. Uh, They make a plan and they decide to go to Jerusalem to work out this dispute in the presence of the elders, in the presence of the leaders of the early church. We said this morning that our driving question would be, what do you do when you disagree? And specifically answering that context in the, or answering that question in the context of the local church. And so at this point in our text, I think we find our first instruction. Hey, what do you do when you disagree? What do you do when there's vehement disagreement within the local faith community? Well, step one, I think, is we get together. We get together. Paul and Barnabas, along with those who oppose them, they they headed to Jerusalem. They decided they were going to go have this herd in the presence of the elders. They were going to go get with some folks they trust and sit down at the same table and sort of openly and honestly address the disagreement that existed between them. They didn't push for division. They didn't start making plans to split. They didn't say, you go your way, we'll go our way. They said, no, we're going to get together. I mean, how easy would it have been for Paul and Barnabas to say, you know what, we've been doing pretty well. 
We've actually had a lot of Gentile converts come to the faith. They've been added to the thousands when we go out and preach. We're kind of riding a wave pretty high. Sure, we've had opposition, but man, uh, we're the future. Our brand of Christianity is growing, and there's more Gentiles in the world than there are Jews. So, you know, good luck. Keep reaching these Jewish converts. But honestly, give us some time, and you're going to see we're bigger, we're better, we're stronger. You're going to wish that you came with us, right? I mean, they could have pushed for division at this point and said, you do church for Jews, we'll do church for Gentiles, and let's just exist better apart. That could have been their posture, but they act differently here. And they say, no, 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 let's get together. Let's hear this out together. And now I spent a good chunk of time this last week speculating about, okay, why, why would they do this? What was it within them that said, hey, it's better to hear out this disagreement in the presence of the elders than it is to split at this juncture, even as our disagreement is deep? And I want to be real clear. I'm just speculating here. I'm just imagining, but I couldn't help but think of Paul's upbringing as a Jewish religious leader. And I couldn't help but think of the Jewish backgrounds of the people that are coming into his church and saying, hey, you've got to be circumcised to be saved. I thought, okay, all these folks that are disagreeing, they've got this same Jewish background, they've read the Hebrew scriptures, and I wondered, just wondered, if maybe in the midst of their disagreement, some of the sacred words from the Proverbs would have bubbled up in their minds. You know, I thought perhaps maybe they thought of Proverbs 13, which teaches where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Or I thought maybe just maybe they thought of Proverbs 17 that says whoever loves a quarrel loves sin. Or I thought maybe they, maybe they thought maybe Proverbs 12 came to mind and said, hey, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Or maybe Proverbs 11, which says, where there is no guidance, people fail, but in the abundance of counselors, there is safety. Now, I'm going to be clear, church, I'm just imagining, I'm just speculating. But the folks here that are disagreeing had been shaped by Jewish scriptures. They had been taught this wisdom. And I wondered, hey, maybe in that moment of deep, deep, deep disagreement, maybe they remembered the wise instruction of scripture that said, there's not value, there's not profit, there's nothing to be gained in quarreling, and fighting, and bickering, and just splitting ways. But there's, there's goodness that comes from seeking advice and getting together. I thought maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit brought that scripture to mind, and they said, you know what? Instead of fighting and splitting here, let's head to Jerusalem. Let's get together and decide what to do in light of our disagreement. And so that's, that's what they model for us. What do we do when we disagree? We get together. This is what we learn first in Acts 15. But let's be honest, church. I mean, how many times do churches get this wrong? Uh, how many times, I mean, uh, faith communities said, you know what, let's just go our separate ways instead of trying to figure this out within our community. I'm sure that even in a room of this kind of modest, humble size, we could stop now and spend the rest of our time together sharing stories about times that faith communities have split, that faith communities have argued their way into separating, uh, where faith communities have not followed the example here of getting together to seek a common answer and resolution, but sadly um, have said, you know what, it, it, forget you, and we're going away. I mean, sadly, unfortunately, this seems to be the record and the witness of many, many churches. Uh, we've demonstrated to a watching world that when you're offended, when you're upset, when you can't believe what the folks over there are doing, it's better just to go your own way. But I do think that Acts 15 teaches us that even when we disagree sharply, step one is not to complain, it's not to divide, it's not to pick sides, but it's first to, to get together. 
We get together. Paul and his critics say, let's go together to Jerusalem. But, but what happens when they get there? Uh, well, fortunately, our text tells us, and we see it beginning in verse 6. So they, they show up in Jerusalem, and in verse 6 it says, the apostles and the elders were gathered to consider this matter. So they show up. They gather everyone together, and I want you to kind of get this picture in their, your head that, you know, everyone who's anyone is there. So Paul and Barnabas are there. Uh, Peter's there who followed Jesus. James, Jesus' brother, is there. John, Jesus' best friend, I imagine, is there. There's all sorts of leaders from the early church together at this council in Jerusalem there to settle this dispute. So they're all there in the room. And then verse 7, after there had been much debate... Again, another small phrase with a lot of meaning. You know, how long do you think it went on? Was there hours of debate? Was it days of debate? You know, did we, we talk it out here, then we go grab lunch at Jimmy John's, let's come back and do this in the afternoon. I mean, it's, we don't know how long, but much debate. After much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he has made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. And then jumping to verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So everyone gathers in the room. And there's much debate, maybe, maybe hours, maybe days. But after each party has had a chance to present their case and lay out what they see as, as being at stake in this decision, right, to serve passionately, hey, this is why they either need to be culturally Jewish or they don't need to be culturally Jewish. They need to be circumcised, they don't need to be circumcised. Everyone shared their opinions. After all that discussion, Peter stands up. And I imagine that maybe folks leaned in a little bit because Peter was close with Jesus. You know, he'd been around since the very beginning. Odds are good that folks thought, hey, this guy would know what Jesus would say in this situation. And we're all here because we follow Jesus. We believe in Jesus. So Peter stands up and he says, friends, hey, remember a few years ago when we were just starting out? This is my summary of verse 10. Remember when I got that vision, you know, it was this like sheet being descended and it, God told me, hey, don't call anything, you know, unclean that God's made clean. Do you remember this vision? And even you, church, do you remember this when we talked about this in Acts 10 a few weeks ago? Peter said, remember when that happened as we were just starting out? Remember when God showed up vividly to tell me that the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection was news for all people? Uh, that it belonged just as much to the Gentiles as it did to us, the Jews, that it was for everyone regardless of their background, their national origin, their income level, their cultural custom. And remember when because of that vision we started like sharing the gospel more with some Gentiles and we saw God give them the Holy Spirit just as he gave the Spirit to us? You know, people are like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Peter continues, he says, you've seen it. I've seen it. We've seen the Holy Spirit, God's power, God's visible power, show up in the lives of these Gentile converts. So it should be clear that God makes no distinction between us and them, between Jew and Gentile, but rather, Peter insists, he sees us all the same. He sees us all as people who will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. I mean, after much debate, Peter stands up and everyone leans in to listen to what he has to say. And Peter says, hey, when it comes down to it, we all need the same thing. We all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. More than we need good rules, and good rules are great. Good rules keep you from trouble. But Peter says, more than we need good rules, 
and more than we need sharp advice and more than we need better habits, but man, do we need better habits. I need better habits. But Peter said more than that, we all need Jesus. And Peter says we can't get away from this truth. At the end of the day, this is what matters most. This is the truth that's behind and underneath everything else. And I think Peter's declaration here leads us to our second instruction this morning. What do we do when we disagree? Well, first, certainly we get together. We've got to get together. But then we seek truth. We seek truth. When we disagree, we get together, and then we work to clarify what matters most. We work to identify what's most fundamentally true. We say, gosh, we, we don't want to make decisions just based on our own prejudice or our own preference or our own partiality. We want to make a decision based in truth. So we get together and we seek truth. Because notice in Acts chapter 15, Peter refocuses all those gathered on the truth of the gospel, the truth that everyone fundamentally needs God's grace that's made available through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter said that's what's more true than anything else we could debate about. We can all agree, can't we, that we all need Jesus. That's what Peter says. And by focusing people on this core reality and focusing people on this core truth, that whether you're Jew or Gentile, your only hope for salvation is, is the work of Jesus Christ, the grace of God given through Jesus. He encourages council members to not get caught up in their own you know, pet issues or, or kind of favorite stances or favorite, favorite convictions. And he says, no, 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 we've got to fundamentally remember what's ultimately true. And I would say that this is why Christ's community is a church that values learning that values the study of Scripture. Some folks uh, have called us before. They've said we're grad school church, which I kind of like. I don't hear it as an insult. Uh, but, but we're known for that. We're a little bit, we're a, a heady place sometimes. I hope we make it clear. I hope we translate it well. We make it plain. But this is a church that values the truth, that values theological reflection and thoughtful engagement with the biblical text and with biblical history. And it's because we believe that truth matters. The truth about who God is, the truth about what God's done, the truth about what God requires of us, of how God's designed life to be lived, we believe that that matters and is of great importance. And at the Jerusalem Council, Paul and Silas and Peter and John and all those that are gathered, everyone in attendance, they looked at the undeniable work of God among the Gentiles. You know, no one can dispute that the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit. And they looked back at the Old Testament prophets who said that a day was coming when God would bring all people together, Jew and Gentile, to worship him. And so they're thinking through the scriptures, right, a great place for truth. They're seeing what they've seen and can't deny through the power of the Spirit. And they concluded that, hey, what's absolutely true is that Jesus is the person who makes all the difference. And now both Jew and Gentile, it seems to us, and the Spirit's confirming it, have been invited into God's family together as sons and daughters of God. And they unified around that truth. They agreed with Peter's assertion that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, was dependent upon God's grace in Christ, and they decided to let that truth guide their decision-making there at the council. They got together, and they sought the truth. Now, church, this is my friend Laura. 
Um, and Laura's absolutely a genius. Uh, Laura and I met at Indiana University where we were part of the same scholarship program and Laura uh, went on to, again, finish her bachelor's at IU. She got her master's degree at Oxford, her PhD at Rutgers. Uh, Laura is just one of those genius, genius people. She is as smart as smart gets. And one afternoon, you know, years ago, Laura and I were talking about faith at IU. Uh, we were talking about why some people have faith and some people don't have faith and why, you know, certain religious convictions matter to people and, uh, you know, it's not important for others. And Laura said something in our con conversation that stuck with me ever since. And so talking about faith, talking about Christianity for me, and she said, you know, I don't want to believe in Christianity because it makes me feel good or because it helps me cope with the world. I only want to believe Christianity because it's true. I love that sentence. I only want to believe Christianity because it's true. And I think Laura articulated something that day uh, that many of us who have been around faith for a while can forget. I mean, it's this, that Christianity has always been about what's true. It's always been about the truth. It's always been focused on speaking honestly about what's happening in our world, whether it be the creator who made it all or the forces that are at place in it now or what's going on within our own hearts. Our faith has always been about speaking honestly, openly, and truthfully about what's really happening in the world. And what's unfortunate is that in some modern faith communities, that, that value of truth has been, has been devalued. And seeking truth has been seen as something that's maybe nice but not necessary, uh, that's maybe important but not of ultimate importance or ultimate, uh, ultimately essential. I mean, and some have gone so far uh, to say that, gosh, conversations about truth can usually be a bit divisive, so maybe it's better just not to have those conversations at all. And I would say that's not what we see modeled here in Acts 15. We see people in the midst of great disagreement right? I mean, no small dissension and debate. This is big disagreement, right? We see people in the midst of great disagreement getting together, but seeking truth, seeking fundamentally together to reason about what is ultimately true. What is God actually doing in the world? How do we understand kind of the broad testimony of scripture we have? How do we understand that speaking into this moment here and now? So when we disagree, what do we do? Well, first we get together. Second, we seek the truth. But there's one more thing we do, and we find it beginning in verse 13. So after Peter makes his speech and says, hey, 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 remember that vision. Remember, there's no distinction that God makes between us. Then James, the brother of Jesus, stands up. And James says, listen to me, Simon, so Peter's other name, right? Simon Peter has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. And the words of the prophet are in agreement with this, as it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things known from long ago. So we'll pause here. The first thing James says, like Peter, uh, he wants to root his argument in the truth. He wants to root his argument in the Hebrew scriptures that were available to them at the time, and so he says, hey... We know from the very beginning, even these Old Testament prophets are saying a day is coming when the Gentiles will be part of the family of God. That's where I want to begin what I'm about to say. James says, I want to root it in scripture. Amos said a day was coming. I think it's here now. So James says that. And then he says this. And what he says next, I think, is the key to the entire chapter. What he says next, this one sentence, helps us understand what's at the heart 
of the decision reached at the Jerusalem Council. James says in verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. James says, hey, because it's always been God's plan for both Jew and Gentile to be in God's family, to serve and live together as brothers and sisters with him as Lord, he said, let's quit making it so difficult. Let's quit making it so hard. Let's quit making it so tough for them to integrate into our faith community. Let's not make it more cumbersome and more challenging than it needs to be for those Gentiles who have faith in Jesus to be a part of our family. Let's not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are coming to faith, who are turning to God, to be part of our family. This is what James teaches in verse 19, and it took me on a trip down memory, 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 memory lane. There we go, memory lane this week. As I'm thinking about James' words, and I'm imagining, gosh, what is this? Where have I heard this before? This concept sounds familiar. It reminded me of a time that I worked for a place called the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. Now, I know I've talked a lot about my job as a children's librarian, a lot about big conferences with fog and smoke, but here's another job from my past, the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, a Christian bioethics research center at Trinity International University. The center's work focuses on medical ethics, it advocates for the dignity of all people from a Christian perspective. It does great work in global women's health. Uh, I got to interact with all kinds of doctors at this job, so it was kind of nice. It's where I got most of my button-up shirts and ties. Uh, and so I served there as an event producer, uh, coordinating logistics for many of the center's you know, conferences and special uh, kind of symposia for you know, all these real smart folks. So my first year there, I noticed that a good chunk of our national uh, conference budget was being spent on securing temporary metal ramps for the space in which we met. Because what was true about the space that we met is it was an absolutely beautiful space, kind of this old sort of historic little spot, but it wasn't quite accessible to all people. And so the center naturally, uh, being an organization that works on behalf of folks of all abilities, wanted the space to be accessible to anyone um, and easy for our community of scholars and other interested individuals to navigate. And so this made sense to me. So we rented a whole bunch of ramps, right? Temporary metal ramps to go over stairs. But one ramp didn't quite make sense. And it was this ramp that would lead up to the stage. And uh, it wasn't inexpensive to rent. I mean, this was a, I don't know if you've ever been in the like event rental industry, but things get so pricey. So it wasn't an inexpensive ramp to kind of, you know, both rent and then put the, they call it like a pipe and drape, but to get the black fabric over it and make it all look nice for the stage. So it wasn't inexpensive. Um, and it seemed unnecessary to me because that particular year at the conference, we weren't going to have any speakers that I thought would need to make use of the ramp. Right? And so it's like, okay, well, I get why we rent these other ramps, but no one really needs this one leading up to the stage. Why do, we even, why do we have this one? And so I went to my boss, and I said, hey, what's with this ramp? Why is it on our rental order? Couldn't we save a little money here if we just cut this off of our event rental, um, event rental request? And my supervisor looked at me, and she said, oh, no, Tyler. No, we can't do that at all. We're a center that teaches that the image of God is stamped on every single person, regardless of their, their origin, their background, their gender, their ability or disability. She said, we believe that accessibility is a human dignity issue. And so this ramp to the stage, even if no one uses it, this makes a statement that we want no place to be off limits to anyone ever. And so it is worth the cost 
for us to get a visible ramp up to our stage, even if no one uses it. She said, but we don't know if anyone will, but even if no one does, she said, it is worth the cost. And man, church, in that moment, sitting in her office, I was, was so humbled. And I saw kind of the brilliant truth at the heart of her decision. It reminded me that, gosh, Tyler, sometimes it's not about practicality. It's not about pragmatism. It is about people. And I think James is saying something similar here. Uh, the way I thought about it this week, I think James is saying, hey, the church should be a place of ramps, not stairs, you know. Uh, the church should be a place where all people are welcomed and they don't find it difficult to get in, where all people are invited in and folks aren't excluded. The church should be a place where we don't make it unduly difficult for folks to join, uh, where we don't make it unnecessarily complicated for people to participate. He says, let's not make it difficult for those Gentiles who are turning to faith to participate in our community. Let's not exclude them from this family where now we can see that they belong. And I think James' teaching here uh, leads us to our third instruction this morning. You know, when we disagree, when we come to an impasse in a faith community, when we're not sure what to do with the differences we encounter in the lives of the perspectives of others who claim to follow Jesus, when we don't know what to do first, we've got to get together. Uh, we've got to seek truth. But finally, we prioritize unity. We prioritize unity. We say, hey, at the end of the day, unity is really important. At the end of the day, all of us being able to be together, that, that absolutely matters. Commonality in Christ, that's, that's a high, high value, and so we want to prioritize unity. Let's do whatever it takes for all of us to be together and to be able to worship together. I think that's the third instruction we get from our text, and I think it's that idea that motivates what James says next. Because then he says, okay, we shouldn't make it difficult for those Gentiles who are turning to God uh, to be part of our family. But instead, he says, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, this solution might seem a little bit confusing at first, right? You're like, Tyler, I was tracking with you until we got to these few verses. But I think this actually becomes much easier to understand when we start from the end of James' argument and work our way back to the beginning. So that's what we're going to do together now. James concludes these remarks in verses 19 through 21 by saying, hey, for as long as anyone can remember from ancient generations until now, the law of Moses has been read in weekly gatherings of Jewish people. Folks who have grown up in kind of the Jewish faith, they've heard this law again and again. It's read every week. It's shaped their thinking, their consciences, their belief about what's right and wrong in the world. Their kind of whole framework for reality has been shaped by the weekly reading of this law. What Jewish people see as acceptable and unacceptable, as good and bad, have been taught to them by their weekly engagement with the scriptures. And so, James argues... It seems reasonable if we want everyone to be able to get together. It seems reasonable for us to instruct the Gentiles who don't share this perspective with the Jews, who haven't been shaped by Jewish law. It seems reasonable for us to instruct them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood, because these habits 
had been so set in the Jewish mind as like absolutely terrible habits, habits that, you know, how can people do that and be close to God? And because these are some that really stand out, James says, because that scripture has been read weekly and week, you know, day in, day out for as long as Jewish people have been around, they, this has formed their consciousness. Let's ask the Gentile believers to sacrifice some of the freedom they might have in Christ and not do these things so that we can all get together, so that we can value unity, right? Now, to be very clear, there are other reasons beyond just Jewish law that the Gentiles would be invited to abstain from sexual immorality, and Paul has plenty of letters about that. I mean, if you want to read 1 Corinthians, there's whole treatises on other reasons why that's not a good thing. But in terms of these other dietary laws, I think these especially, the invitation to abstain from those, is really rooted in a conscience issue. The Jews have very sincere convictions about these dietary laws, James is saying, and so we can get together because unity matters. We're going to ask the Gentiles to sacrifice their freedom to eat some of this, you know, meat that's been sacrificed to idols, which Paul writes about later, some of this stuff with blood. We're going to ask them to sacrifice that freedom to preserve unity. In the same way that the Jews are sacrificing their biases against the Gentiles and saying, no, you're invited in our family, Gentiles are invited to sacrifice some of their freedom so that they cannot offend their Jewish brothers and sisters. Does this make sense? Right, again, sexual immorality is a separate category. That's not an optional one. But these later, Paul's going to write more about these dietary laws and say, okay, there's some stuff here. But, but what matters here is that each side is making a sacrifice for the sake of unity. Each side is saying, you know what, I'm going to represent you as a brother or sister, even though I never thought a Gentile would be in the family of God. And the Gentiles are saying, I'm not going to eat this, even though I've always eaten it, so that I can be in close community with you. James says, let's get everyone together and let's fight for unity. Let's fight to make this a place where people can, sure, we've had sharp disagreements. We've grown up differently. We come from different places, but now we all worship the same Christ. Let's do what it takes to make sure that unity is preserved, that we're able to come together and to worship together. And so what do we do when we disagree? Well, first, yeah, we get together. Second, we seek truth. But finally, we prioritize unity. We do all we can to ensure that we can live and work and worship together. We sacrifice our preferences and our own righteousness and our ability to say that, well, this is my way or the highway and you've got it wrong. We say, no, 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 we're, we're going to do what it takes for us to worship together. And church, I think that this kind of sacrifice, this sacrifice on our own insistence on what's right and everyone else has to match up to my standard and, you know, if, if they don't do this, then they don't really belong here. I think this kind of sacrifice of that self-righteousness, uh, this kind of sacrifice for the good of the community, this kind of surrender of one's own preferences to enable unity to occur, I think this kind of sacrifice is miraculous every time you see it. I don't think it's something that people do naturally. I think it's something that God's Holy Spirit enables. In short, it's an answer to prayer. And specifically, I think it's an answer to a particular person's prayer. Because on the night of his crucifixion, Jesus went to a garden to pray. And while he was there, he poured out his heart to God and he said, Father, I do not pray for these disciples only, meaning the disciples that were with him, you know, right there in the immediate vicinity. He said, but I also pray for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me 
and you love them even as you love me. On the night of his crucifixion, Jesus prayed for his followers, prayed for his disciples, and he prayed for all the people that they would come to introduce to faith in him. And he prayed first that God would give them joy. You see that earlier in John 17. You pray also, uh, he prayed in John 17 that God would strengthen them in the midst of opposition, not take them out of the world, but support them in the midst of being opposed. He prayed for that, but he wrapped up his prayer with a prayer for unity amongst his followers, with a prayer that they would be one united family and that in their unity, everyone would recognize that God is real and that God's love is real as it's displayed in the miraculous combination of people from different backgrounds in God's family. And I want to argue, church, that in Acts 15, Jesus's prayer is answered. I mean, in a very real sense, I think that Acts 15 is an answer to Jesus's prayer in John 17. Jesus prayed that his church would be united, and in Acts 15, in the midst of sharp disagreement, folks decide to get together to seek the truth and ultimately to prioritize unity, to seek a solution where both Jew and Gentile can be in the same space and worship together because they recognize the truth that it's Jesus who made all the difference, his life, death, and resurrection. And so with that truth uniting us, we can find a way to make this work. I think Jesus's prayer is answered in Acts 15, right? A decision that allows Jewish converts and Gentile converts to worship Jesus side by side, it's miraculous. And it did help the watching world realize that there's something special about this community of Jesus followers. But in the moments that remain, church, know this. I don't think Jesus just prayed for Peter, James, and John, and Paul, and Barnabas, and Silas to make the right decision. I'm convinced that Jesus prayed this prayer for us. That Jesus prayed that our church would be a place where folks with disagreements could come together and worship side by side and show a watching world that radical love and self-sacrifice is real. And so, church, what will we do when we disagree? And what will we do when we find ourselves not seeing eye to eye uh, with someone who sits down the row from us in this church? What will we do when the way someone else makes a decision or the way someone else is kind of viewing a topic just feels absolutely, absolutely foreign to us? What, what will we do in those moments? It's my prayer and I would say it's a prayer that I'm praying and we're praying alongside Jesus that we'll be a community that gets together, that doesn't just say, hey, forget you, I'm going over this direction. We'll be a community that gets together. We'll be a community that seeks the truth together. And at the end of the day, to the best of our ability, prioritizes unity so that all people can belong here, so that all folks can feel at home here and worship here, so that all folks can if they're united under Jesus, can find this church to be a place where they belong and are cared for and supported. I mean, in short, church, my prayer is that we would be a church of ramps, not stairs, right? a church that doesn't make it unduly difficult for those who are coming to faith in Christ to be a part of our family and to worship Him alongside of us. That's what I've been so convicted upon uh, in studying Acts 15. I mean, what do you think today, right? Is this pretty convincing? So let's pray now uh, for God's help in that matter. So Lord, we, uh, man, 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 it is so, it feels so much easier to divide, uh, to disagree, to take our ball and go home, to be upset and frustrated when, when we reach disagreement in any circumstance, in any situation, but particularly within the church, God. 
Uh, church people, we can be mean to each other sometimes. So Lord, help us to remember your prayer for unity and help us to remember the example of Acts 15. Help us to remember how thoughtful people, how faithful people, how folks who are close with you and spent time with you found a way to enable both Jew and Gentile to worship you together, sacrificing for one another, Lord, um, but ultimately recognizing the truth that you're the one who makes all the difference. God, we need your help to do that. It's a difficult thing. It's miraculous whenever it happens. So may your spirit enable this church to be a place where people get together, seek the truth, and prioritize unity. We'll give you all the glory for it. We ask for your help in this time now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.